Would you join me now this morning as we read God's word from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who were speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow and pray one more time. Lord, you tell us that anyone who would look on your son, Jesus, would be saved. And I pray that you would give us a clear sight of your son this morning. The same spirit at work in Acts chapter 2 is here, still moving, still outpouring. Please wake in our hearts. Please help us to believe what we read from you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you haven't already, you can turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2. Acts is um, a book right after the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus. Acts is part 2 to the Gospel of Luke. You can read Luke chapter 1, and Luke's prologue works for that book and this one as well. They're both written together. The title Acts is, uh, or was a genre of book dedicated to describing the mighty exploits of great heroes. And while the title that has stuck through the ages to us is the Acts of the Apostles, uh, you could call this book the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2 is the prologue of uh, this book. It's the origin story of the New Testament church. It's, it's how the church got started. It tells us where we, Christ's Redeemer Church, came from. And the church begins with a bang, a supernatural event. Now last week was Easter. We celebrated the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And today we look at the events of Pentecost. We're picking up the story right where we left off last week. And the question for us this morning is what's happened between uh, Easter Sunday and Pentecost? Well, Jesus, in that intervening time between the ends of the Gospels and the first chapter of Acts, Jesus appears to his disciples. Many disciples in many ways, as much as 500 at one time. And as he appears to them, he starts making them a promise and he repeats that promise in Acts chapter 1, verse 5. If you have your Bible open, you can read it real quick. 
It says, for John, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And again, if you look down at verse 8, you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And with those words, Jesus ascended into heaven, and the text tells us a cloud takes him out of sight. And so the disciples who were gathered with Jesus on a hilltop just outside of Jerusalem go make their way back into the city with a promise in their hearts, but not else, much else to show for the marvelous things that Jesus has done and said in their midst. Well, now what do we do? They must have wondered. And that's where we pick up our story in Acts chapter 2. The disciples have been waiting for this promise that Jesus made them in verse 5 and 8. The Holy Spirit, the one who is coming with power, they're waiting. And they've been waiting for some time. And Acts chapter 1 tells us they are gathered with about 120 other followers of Jesus. Jesus' mother, uh, Mary, and Jesus' brothers. And on Pentecost, they're in an upper room praying. Pentecost is one of three feasts that the Jews celebrate annually. And this one is a big event for the city of Jerusalem. Just like the Feast of Passover, the one that we uh, uh, talked about on uh, uh, Good Friday, which happened a couple months earlier, verse 5 tells us that there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So that the city is probably more than doubled in size as people from all over the world are coming together, together to celebrate this annual feast. And there's anticipation in the air and a lot's going on. And while this is happening, the, the disciples are all huddled together in a little upper room. And it's onto this scene that the Holy Spirit comes. Let's look at verse 1 again. Now when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now verse 2 tells us that while they were waiting, there's suddenly in the room a, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And as they look around trying to figure out where this sound is coming from, this hurricane in the house they see tongues of flame, like uh, the flame of like a flickering torch, you know, like uh, the tiki torches that you put outside uh, in the summertime. They see those, uh, and we don't know if they were on the disciples' heads or on their shoulders, but they appeared on them. And whatever they had been waiting for, when Jesus said the Holy Spirit is coming with power, I don't think they could have anticipated what was about to happen. Verse 4 tells them that they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit fills them up, he gives them utterance and they begin to speak in other tongues. These are languages that they uh, had never known before, maybe even languages that they had never heard before, languages that they had never studied in school, but languages nonetheless. And they begin speaking in the languages of other nations. Now, God shows up in fire all over the Bible. In Exodus, he shows up as a burning bush to Moses. 
Also in Exodus, he leads his people on as a pillar of cloud and fire. And when God gives his commandments to his people, uh, his power descends on Mount Sinai and the people see smoke and flame and fire. This fiery God who led his people out of Israel so long ago is about to lead souls to Christ. A house packed with 120 people, filled with the Spirit, speaking loudly in other languages, isn't going to go unnoticed for long. Look what happens next in verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Right? They're there for Pentecost. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? And I'm going to spare you my pronunciation of these names. Let's just skip down to verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all perplexed and amazed, saying to one another, What does this mean? And others mocked, saying, They're filled with new wine. Now, assembled Jews from all over the world, they hear the commotion. They hear the, maybe the rushing wind. They hear the disciples cry out and begin to speak loudly and boldly in other languages. And I'm sure after the fiasco of the Passover, just a few months earlier, uh, the Jewish leaders are just hoping for just a smooth and quiet Pentecost. They've taken care of Jesus, his disciples are in hiding, and they're just like, let's just take it easy, this Pentecost. Let's just have a little R and R. And suddenly, there's a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and suddenly, the band of disciples, all 120 of them, burst from this upper room into the city and they began speaking in the tongues of the nations. You know what it's like when um, like you're in a crowd and of strangers, a big sea of people, maybe like Six Flags or something, and you hear someone call your name, like in the sea of strangers, you immediately just kind of turn and swivel, right? There's this instant recognition well, here in a sea of strangers, of people from all over the world, most of the people from your hometown who spoke your language are right there with you. And way over here in some other part of the city, you begin hearing someone speak in your own language. Everybody's head is on a swivel. What is going on and who is speaking to me? And they go over there and they realize these guys are Galileans. Galileans are the rednecks of Judea. Okay, they're the East Texans of Judea. And they're like, these guys are speaking our language. And not only my language, but the languages of everyone else present. Parthians and Medes and Elamites. Now watch this. These three are from the East. Cretans and those from Cyrene and Rome. From the West. Those from Pontus, Cappadocia, Phrygia. From the North. Egypt. Judea, Arabia, from the south. Every corner of the world is here. And every corner of the world is hearing the gospel proclaimed in their own language. And the crowd is amazed, the text says, and perplexed. They don't know what to do with this. With no explanation, some of them just scoff. They say, 
they must be filled with new wine. But the question on everybody's lips, according to verse 13, is what does this mean? And in front of this amazed and perplexed crowd, Peter stands up with the 11 apostles around him and delivers the first ever missionary story. One of the last times we saw Peter, we saw him denying Jesus, swearing he didn't know Jesus, swearing he didn't even speak the same language as Jesus. And yet here he is in front of the world about to proclaim Christ. Verse 14. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, and he said, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, declares the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my male servants and my female servants on those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I shall show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter stands up as the apostolic representative and he addresses the crowds. He says, listen up. All this commotion you hear, this stuff that you're seeing, this is something big. Pay attention. He says, these men aren't drunk as you suppose. He says in verse 15, he says, the reason I know they're not drunk is because it's only the third hour of the day. You know what he's saying? It's, no, it's only 9 a.m. No one's drunk at 9 a.m. Uh, seems like ironclad logic to me. So we'll just keep going with it. It's only 9 a.m. This marvelous event is a prophecy fulfilled. It's something he tells them that the prophet Joel has already spoken about. And then in verse 17, if you look there, Peter directs uh, their attention to Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. Now, what Peter is doing here is the first century equivalent of, of saying, now turn in your Bibles to page uh, such and such. Um, this is, uh, these are people who know the Bible. What, G, uh, what Peter is doing is intentional. Their gathered crowd is diverse indeed. They're from every corner of the globe, but they are all Jews. They are all God's people, and they have been waiting their whole lives for the Messiah, and they know their Hebrew Bibles well. And so Peter says, what's happening in your midst? This is straight out of Scripture. This is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is near. God is pouring out his spirit on, on, on all mankind, he tells them in verse 17. Now, Joel's prophecy is set up in such a way that the wonders and the signs increase in magnitude and marvel with each one he lists from order of least to greatest. Verse 17, he says, Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Amazing. 
The old and the young will have visions and dreams. Stunning. Your slaves, both male and female, will be filled with the Spirit and they'll prophesy. That's unbelievable. And the sun will grow dark. The moon will turn to blood. Unbelievable. But you know what's even more amazing stunning, unimaginable, unbelievable. Well, I've saved the best for last. Verse 21 says, here is the greatest wonder that's going to happen as the day of the Lord draws near. You guys ready for it? Verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Looking back, we read Acts chapter 2, and we're used to ordinary. And when we read Acts chapter 2, what really sticks out to us on an initial reading is the speaking in tongues, right? These disciples speaking in other languages. The, the tongues of flame, the mighty sound of a wind rushing through the house. We look at that and we say, that's incredible. How cool. And it is really cool. But that is not the most amazing unimaginable, unbelievable thing that's happening here. The point of Joel's prophecy is not about how cool it is that people can speak in other languages, but that salvation has come for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Peter quotes Joel 2 to explain what's happening in the crowd's midst. All this prophetic activity is signaling that the day of the Lord is approaching, and it is a day of salvation for everyone. But now we come to an even more important question. Why is all this happening now? I mean, the, the Jews have been waiting for Jesus their whole lives. Why is the Lord pouring out his spirit on all mankind today? Well, Peter addresses that question in verse 22. Let's look. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So why is Joel chapter 2 being fulfilled today? Peter tells them it's because God has raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. And we often take it for granted that people know who Jesus is. You, you speak to, to most people in our community and they've heard of Jesus. And when you say Jesus, we're all referring to the same person, Jesus of Nazareth. But how did the assembled Jews know who Jesus was? Well, there's another important question that I've been putting off answering until now, and it's this. Why did the Holy Spirit descend on Pentecost? Why not any other day of the year? Why did he choose to come on this day? Well, like I said earlier, Pentecost is also called the, the Feast of Weeks. It's one of three annual feasts that the Jews celebrate annually. The Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. It's a harvest festival, like our Thanksgiving. Um, and Augustine, uh, a theologian, many, many years ago, he, he said that he believed that God chose to descend on this day of harvest to reap another kind of harvest, the salvation of souls. And that's really cool. We're not told exactly why it lines up with this 
festival specifically, but I can tell you this. This is only the very next annual festival after the Passover, and lots and lots of people are in Jerusalem. Jesus was only crucified just a few months earlier. It was an event still fresh in the air. Its news had been spread all over the world because Jews from all over the world had witnessed Jesus crucified. They had taken the story, I'm sure, back to their hometowns. You won't believe what happened this Passover, sharing the story. So by the time we come to Pentecost, Jews from all over the world are here again. They have descended on Jerusalem, as verse 5 tells us. Now dwelling in Jerusalem, there were Jews, devout men from every nation on earth. And verses 7 through 11 tells us that the assembly is made up of Jews and Jewish converts from everywhere. They had heard about the Jewish leaders' kangaroo court. They had probably heard about the scourging of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus. They'd probably heard about the darkness over the land. Many of them had even seen it themselves. They had heard of the temple curtain being torn in half. They had heard the whispers that the tomb was empty. And it is also likely that many of the same people present on Pentecost Sunday had been present in Jerusalem to cry, Hosanna on Good Friday or on Palm Sunday and crucify him on Good Friday. And when Peter says in verse 23, this Jesus, you crucified, he literally means it. Peter says, Jesus was a man attested to you by God with mighty works, mighty wonders, and mighty signs. God was confirming the identity of Jesus, his whole ministry. The problem was people saw it and they refused to believe he was who he said he was. And so they killed him. But Peter says this in verse 24, God raised Jesus up. He has loosed the pangs of death for Jesus, the anguish of death for Jesus, because he says in verse 24, it was not possible for death to hold Jesus down. And now we get to the heart of Peter's sermon, the most important question, who is Jesus? Now Peter's going to tell this to us in two parts. He's going to tell us that Jesus is the Christ and he's going to tell us that Jesus is Lord. And he's going to use two scriptures to prove it. So first let's turn in our Hebrew Bibles as it were to Psalm 16 verse 8 through 11. You don't even have to turn there now because it's quoted for you right here in Acts chapter 2. Thank you Peter. But here we go. Going back to verse 24. Let's follow the line of logic. Verse 24. It was not possible for him, Jesus, to be held by death. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now Psalm 16 is what we call a messianic prophecy. It's part of a promise God had made his people many years ago that he would send a savior to rescue his people from their enemies. Now a lot of people miss this before the Holy Spirit through Peter explained this text in Acts chapter 2 because this prophecy happens in the first person. At initial glance it seems like Psalm 16 is only about King David. 
It seems like King David is saying, God will never let my soul be abandoned to Hades. It seems like King David is saying, God will never let me see corruption. That's another way of saying, my body will not decompose in the grave. But as Peter is about to so helpfully remind us, King David doesn't really fit that description. Look at verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us here today. So how do we know David doesn't fit the description of Psalm 16? Well, Peter looks around at his Jewish audience in Jerusalem and says, Brothers, we all know what happened to King David. He died He's buried, and in fact, you can walk down the street right now in Jerusalem and find his tomb in the ground. Though David was a great king, a man after God's own heart, a prophet, he died just like any other man, and his body is sitting in the ground right under their feet. So Psalm 16 can't be about David. Who then? Watch closely what Peter does next. Look at verse 30. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he would not, abandon, he would not be abandoned to Hades, nor would his flesh see corruption. In Psalm 16, David is operating both as a king and as a prophet. Psalm 16 isn't about David only, but it is also about the Christ, is what Peter is telling us. It's also about the Messiah. uh, uh, David is cluing us in to something bigger going on now. Now, this kind of typology where one person or thing represents another person or thing is called typology. It shows up all over the place in the Old Testament like in Exodus, y'all remember the Passover, the very first Passover? In Exodus, a lamb was slaughtered on Passover to provide blood for the doorposts, right? And whenever the angel of the Lord came into Egypt, he passed over each one of those homes that had the blood on the door. Uh, he did not pass judgment on those in those homes. In Christ, Jesus, according to the New Testament, His blood was spilled on our behalf. His blood covers our sins. And when God comes in judgment, he sees the blood of Jesus covering us, and he passes over in judgment. And 1 Corinthians 5, 7 just tells us that Jesus is the Passover lamb. This is typology. This is what's going on here in Psalm 16. David is serving as a type for Jesus. David is a lesser. Jesus is the greater David knew that God had promised him an oath that he would one day have a descendant on the throne who would uh, be there forever. And the Holy Spirit through Peter tells us that David foresaw that the descendant would be the resurrected Christ, the Messiah, the promised Savior of Israel. The Christ, according to David's psalm, would not be abandoned to Hades or to death, verse 31 tells us. His flesh would not see corruption. It would not stay dead. Therefore, Peter tells us the Christ would resurrect from the dead. We've known about this since Psalm 16. Just none of us saw it before. 
And here we get to the beating heart of our text this morning. The reason the day of the Lord is at hand. The reason rushing winds are coming through houses. Tongues of flame are landing on disciples. People are speaking in other languages. The reason all of this is happening this day is verse 32. This Jesus God has raised again. And of that we are all witnesses. The Jews have been waiting for hundreds of years their whole lives for the Messiah. And here at Pentecost, the Messiah is revealed. This Jesus, who God raised up, this is the Christ. He checks every box. He's a descendant of David. Check. He was attested to the Jews with signs, wonders, mighty works. Check. He's a prophet. Check. He's a priest. Check. And most importantly, he is risen from the dead. Y'all, there have been a lot of people claiming to be the Christ since Jesus rose from the dead. A lot of people claiming to be the Messiah. And you could look at any one of those items on that list and there is one conspicuously absent. Jesus Christ alone rose from the dead. Peter is saying, you can talk to any one of the hundred people standing here speaking in other languages. They'll speak in your language. Just come on up to them, and they'll all tell you the same thing. Jesus died, Jesus was buried, and Jesus is raised from the dead, and we've all seen him. Who is Jesus? He's the Christ. Now, that's part one, and part two is this. Quickly, look at verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens. Okay, let's stop right there. This is dense stuff. Follow me and there will be fruit reaped from this. So just follow the line of logic that Peter's taking us on. The disciples are witnesses that Jesus has been raised. But raised to where? In verse 33, Peter says, well, he's been raised and exalted to the right hand of the Father. He's in heaven right, in, right now at the right hand of the Father. Now, in ancient times, the right hand was the symbol of power. And the fact that Jesus has been raised to the right hand of the Father means he has the seat of power from the power of all powers. The power of God himself and from this position, Peter tells us, Jesus has received the, the promise of the Holy Spirit. The promise that he made it to his disciples back in chapter 1. And now in verse 33, here at Pentecost, he's pouring the Spirit out. At his goodwill, at his pleasure, because he is the one with power. Here in verse 33, we see Jesus is pouring out the Holy Spirit in Joel's prophecy, it was God who was pouring out the Holy Spirit. We can see even now, Christ, Jesus our Lord, and God the Father are one. We see Trinitarian theology even here in Peter's sermon. Now Peter tells us to turn in our Hebrew Bibles one final time, and this time to Psalm 110 verse 1. He says, David never ascended into heaven. Oh no, Peter reminds us he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Messiah, Christ, just means anointed one. It means chosen by God. David knew that the Messiah, the chosen one, would be one of his descendants, a son in the flesh. 
And so he prophetically declares, the Lord God said to my Lord, my son. How could it be that King David, the mighty ruler of God's chosen people, could look down the corridor of time and address his own son as my Lord? The answer is obvious to us. Jesus is superior to David. Jesus' kingdom is superior to David's kingdom. The promise God makes Jesus in Psalm 110 is, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Where is Jesus right now, guys? According to Psalm uh, verse 33, where is Jesus right now in 2021? He's at the right hand of the Father. That's where he is right now. And what is God doing for Jesus while he is sitting there at the right hand of God? making Jesus' enemies his footstool. Now, let's talk some real deep theology here for a second. You all know what a footstool is, right? It's a stool where you put your feet. Just clarifying. Now, is it a great honor to be a piece of furniture for someone else's feet? Is that something that any of us get excited about? It's a dishonor. And it's a punishment. And God is saying, Jesus, my son, you have humbled yourself to the point of death. Jesus, my son, even death on a cross. You were buried for three days and I rose you from the dead. Death could not hold over you because you were my anointed one. I raised you from the dead. You've ascended into heaven. And now, Jesus, my son, sit at my right hand and watch as I bend my will to crush every one of your enemies under your feet. Guys, the Old Testament is a storehouse packed to bursting with unfulfilled prophecies. With each page, the tension gets stronger and stronger, and we're waiting for the Messiah to come. We're waiting for God to, uh, to reveal these prophecies. Who's the Messiah? When is he coming again? What's this about the Holy Spirit? What's this about the day of the Lord? It keeps growing and growing, and there's not even a trickle of fulfillment. And then suddenly on Pentecost, the doors of the storehouse burst open and out flow a flood of prophetic fulfillment. And you want to know why? Because God has promised his son that he is going to defeat his every enemy and make Jesus Lord of all. No one can stand in God's way. And guess what? For 2,000 years, the victory parade of Jesus has not stopped. It has not slowed down, but it has only increased Guys, we know that God is not after some physical, temporal kingdom. He is after our souls. He is after our lives. He's building a kingdom that will last for all time. The world cannot stop it. The enemy cannot shore up his defenses fast enough against it. And in fact, the old men in each of our own hearts cannot even stop the work of the Spirit in our own hearts. The kingdom of God is expanding as an inevitability. It is the will of God being worked out in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And God will have his way among us. You know what God is doing every time he saves one of our souls here at Christ Redeemer Church? He's defeating his enemies. Do you know what Christ is doing every single time he gives you victory over your sin? He's defeating his enemies. Do you know what happens every time Jesus is worshipped here? Jesus is defeating his enemies. And the will of God has made it so, and the kingdom of Jesus is unstoppable. Who is Jesus? 
Verse 36 tells us, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is Christ. Jesus is Lord. And this same Jesus we crucified. Suddenly we remember we've rejected Jesus. If you look at our sermon archives and listen to the Good Friday sermon, you'll hear the answer to the question, who killed Jesus? If I'm in Christ, I killed Jesus. I have made him my enemy by my sin, my rebellion against him. I am the enemy of Jesus. And do you know what God says he's going to do to the enemies of Jesus? He's going to make them a footstool. He will crush them under Jesus' feet. And this is the judgment of God against our sin. It is an eternity of separation from God, from Jesus himself, where our souls will be crushed and punished for all eternity as enemies of Jesus Christ and Lord. But that's not the end of the story. Here we come at verse 37 with the big finish. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Here we go again. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. The crowd cannot avoid what Peter is telling them and they are cut to the heart. Their consciences are struck with guilt at what they've done. And they turn to the nearest disciples and say, brothers, we crucified Jesus. What is there to be done? And Peter tells them, repent and be baptized. Now, repent represents the negative aspect of salvation, the turning away It's the turning away from your old way of living. It is assenting along with God. You are right. I am wrong. I am fully culpable and guilty for my sins. No excuses. No, God, I was born this way. Give me a break. No, God, I've just been around the wrong crowd my whole life. Give me a break. No, God, we all mess up sometimes. Give me a break. It is a simple Between you and God, I am wrong. You are right. I deserve death. And Jesus died on my behalf. And God has raised him from the dead, so I believe in him. I repent of my sin. I live for Christ. Turning from all those things. Turning from something necessitates turning to something. And that is baptism, the the positive representation of, of salvation here. This is an identification with Jesus Uh, Verse 38 tells us to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. It is a sign that you belong to Jesus. Death, burial, and resurrection. It's a sign of who you were, who you are in Christ, and to whom you belong. It's a sign of where you're going to be with Jesus. Don't let the wording of verse 38 confuse you. Baptism does not forgive us of our sins. It is by grace we are saved through faith. And this is not anything that we have done. It's not up to us. Baptism is an act of obedience and an identification with Jesus. Repent, Peter says, 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that has been poured out on all these people speaking all these other languages. The promise of the Holy Spirit, and this again is what is so profound about Pentecost, the promise of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit is not just for uh, uh, some elite few. It is for every one of us from the most articulate uh, person in the world um, to a child just coming to Christ. The Holy Spirit is the same in every one of us, and he has come in our lives with power, and we know it because we who were dead are now alive. We whose souls were buried in sin have now been raised from the dead, and each day we see the renewal of Christ in our hearts and our lives. It is inexplicable. Jesus must be Lord. Jesus must be Christ. And that's what Peter tells us. It is, this is a promise. The promise of the Holy Spirit is for, your ch- is for you, right? Everyone there, right there in Jerusalem, it is for you. And he said it is for your children, those yet unborn, future generations. The Holy Spirit didn't just go and then was done after a generation. The Holy Spirit is continuing to be poured out on mankind more and more and more with each passing generation. And then he says, uh, um, even for those who are far off, this is the promise of Joel 2. Everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. Those who are far off are those dwelling all the way in McKinney, Texas. This is us. And here, 2,000 years later, in front of our eyes right now, we are seeing the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy made thousands of years ago. Time precludes that we read the rest of Acts and find out what happens through the work of the Holy Spirit. But let's just briefly read the end of the chapter. Verse 40 says, And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The crowds gathered to celebrate at Pentecost, a day of harvest, and the sovereign Lord has reaped a harvest of eternal significance. 3,000 souls overnight. Can you imagine? Hey, welcome to the body of Christ. I don't speak your language, and I don't know if I can, but you and I are brothers for the rest of eternity. You and 3,000 other people. Amazing. And what happens after these souls are saved? What happens after they all kind of all high five, go, that was great. They pack up for home and say, see you at Pentecost 2022. Everything changes. Everything changes. Verse 42. And then we're done. And they, 3,000 people, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Verse 42, you could kind of call the four-part paradigm of church life. You want to know what a healthy church looks like? Verse 42 tells us, we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. 
That's the scripture. That's what we're doing right now. We devote ourselves to fellowship. That's small groups, that's play dates, dinners, pre, post, church time. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread that is the Lord's Supper and to prayers. And if we as Christ Redeemer Church are to be part of what the Lord is doing, I think this is the paradigm for us. Body life is characterized by wonder at what the Lord is doing in our midst. Submission to scripture, communion, benevolence to one another, daily worship. This isn't something that you're just led in on Sundays, but that you lead your families in each day of the week to fellowship, to the Lord's Supper, thankfulness and generosity that flows from thankfulness. We have favor with outsiders. We are worshiping and God is adding to our number daily. This is what life in the body of Christ looks like. We like to say in our day that growth is not necessarily a sign of health in a church. And that's true. But we should absolutely be expecting that we are growing as a church. Growing in worship. Growing in thankfulness. Growing in giving. Yes, even growing numerically. Why? Because God the Father has promised his son he's going to make his enemies a footstool. And God will have his way among us. Because of this, thanks be to Jesus Christ our Lord, we who were once enemies of God, Jesus has called friends. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Christ. If you are alive and listening, if you are in this room right now and breathing, that means that you must repent and believe in Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah and there ain't going to be another one. If you're waiting around, this is it. Brother or sister, if you are in Christ, whatever sin you dragged in here this morning, that does not belong to you anymore. It belongs in the grave where Jesus was buried and your new life in Jesus belongs resurrected as Jesus is at the right hand of, Father, of the Father. You are free. So brother and sister, if there is sin in your life, repent and believe Jesus is Lord and Christ. And if you are here this morning and you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus, Peter's sermon is for you. You are a sinner bound to be Jesus' footstool. And yet, Romans 5.8 tells us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Eternal life is available to you, to everyone who would call on the name of the Lord. Hard stop, no qualification. That's a promise for you. Jesus is the Christ Jesus is Lord. So we bow down and we worship him. He is God. He is seated at the right hand of God. His kingdom is eternal. His kingdom is unstoppable. His Holy Spirit is being poured out in our midst even as we speak now. And if you are in Christ, the war is already won. And whatever battles there are left to be fought in your life are just cleanup duty on the victory parade of Christ through eternity. Who is Jesus? Jesus is our Christ. Jesus is our Lord. So let's bow and worship him right now. Oh Jesus, we confess that we are so often unaware of what you are doing. Lord, 
we are often unaware of the way that you're moving in our midst, in our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to have the eyes of faith to see the power of your spirit at work among us. Lord, we praise you that you are the Christ. You are the promised one, the one that was promised all through the pages of the Hebrew Bible, year after year, generation after generation. It's you, Jesus. You're the one we've been waiting for, and you are Lord. You alone deserve the power, the honor, the blessing, and the glory. And this morning, even now, we bow and worship you alone. And it's in your name alone we pray.